0: glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Stay with me if would please. Exodus chapter 30, we'll read verses 1 through 10. As we move deeper into the tabernacle, it's very interesting. I'll just say this before we read. When God had the tabernacle built, he started in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant and worked his way out in the instruction of how it should be built. As we've worked our way through it, we've worked from the brazen altar because as God approaches man, he approached from himself outward. As we approach God, we approach from out there, and we come in. And so as we're working our way toward the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant, the next piece we'll look at is the veil uh, that was rent in twain the day Jesus died on Calvary. It's a picture of his flesh, and through his broken flesh, we have direct access to God. Amen? And uh, we'll see that, Lord willing, uh, next week. But uh, for now, we're at the altar of incense, which sat directly in front of the veil. Right behind that veil would be the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. So, verse 1, Exodus 30. And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon, of shithim wood shalt thou make it, a cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof. Four squares shall it be, and two cubits shall be the height thereof. The horns thereof shall be of the same. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, the top thereof and the sides thereof round about. And the horns thereof, and thou shalt make unto it a crown of gold round about. And And two golden rings shalt thou make to it under the crown of it. By the two corners thereof, upon the two sides of it shalt thou make it they shall be for places for the staves to bear it with all. And thou shalt make the staves of shittim wood and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. And Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning. When he dresseth the lamps, he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it. A perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meat offering. Neither shall you pour drink offering thereon. And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once in a year, with the blood of the sin offering of atonements. Once in the year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. It's hard for me a little bit this morning to know where to begin uh, as far as introducing the thought to you today. I guess I would would like to start here to help us kind of grasp where I believe the Lord has us going. I've asked questions like this before, but let's say I said, you know, uh, this morning, just at the end of the message, we're going to show uh, a movie. Now, I hope it won't bother you. It's R-rated. It's got some bad language in it. It's got a few scenes that we might want not want young eyes to see but i think you'll enjoy the film how many of you think would have a little difficulty with that and i'm not familiar enough with bad movies to give you an example not anymore thank god but if i gave you an example they're so going to watch this you're like oh pastor no now tell me why not let's just let's let's do a little exercise why would that not would that bother you on this sunday morning if we did that amen The question would be, is it sin on a Sunday morning? Absolutely. But for many people, you know why it would bother? Because of where we are. What day it is. And we go home and do it in our living room, but never at the church building. That is a complete misunderstanding of consecration. You see, consecration is 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We many times put on our church mentality. I've heard people say, "I only listen and play this kind of music at church, but in my car, my personal, hey, I listen to some things you would never play in church." Now I understand there's music that is focused around the Lord, and there's music that's not sinful. That's not. I, I get that. Uh, I'm not. You know, I'm not going to wear my camouflage to church this morning because I'm not hunting. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about music that might have inappropriate language in it, glorifying sin, uh, promoting sin. Eh, it's okay here, but. It's almost like we have compartmentalized, we have our secular life, and we live that like humanists, and we have our spiritual life. When I'm doing my devotions, I'm spiritual. When I'm out cutting firewood, I'm secular. The Bible says, be therefore holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. What does that mean, holy? Holy means a life that is lived 100% of the time to be sweet-smelling to him. All of us are living our lives this morning to please someone. Please don't miss what was just stated. Every person in this room is living your life to please somebody. Many times we're living it to please ourselves. Even when we live it to please other people, it's about pleasing us. Because it's about what people think of us, which boosts our ego, there are three motivating factors for the natural man, all right? The Bible talks about them in 1 John chapter 2. Three principles by which the natural man or the world operates. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What looks good to me, what feels good to me, and what makes me look good to you. Those are the three motivating factors that fuel the way the lost world lives and the way the natural man lives. I thought about it this way in introducing the message this morning. There's three types of people in this room. There's the natural person, the person who's never been born again. It's very likely. I'm not God. I don't know hearts, but it's very always likely we would have someone among us who's never truly been born again. So that's the natural person. Every person naturally is unclean and not fit for heaven. That's the natural man. Then there's a spiritual person, the person who is living their life to the pleasing of the Lord, meaning when God shows them something in their life that's not pleasing him, they immediately adjust to please him. That's a spiritual person, and that's communicated through the Bible. right? When we take the word of God, 1 Corinthians 14 says, a man is spiritual when he acknowledges that the things that are written are the Word, the commandments of God. That's the starting point of spirituality. I acknowledge the authority of Scripture and submit to the mind of God communicated through Scripture so that the moment I know something's not pleasing to him, I'm done with it. Then there's the carnal person. The person who's not natural because they've been born again, but they're still living according to lust and pride. It's called carnality. Meaning I know I'm saved, I know I'm forgiven, but I'm not living a life exclusively to what I know is sweet-smelling to God. How do you know that what... Let me read you a verse very quickly, and this is all by introduction. You have to pray for me to keep my thoughts focused because it's such an important subject this morning, and I'm convinced that the altar of incense represents the consecrated life. The life lived in order to please God. You know what will fuel? I'm certain the incense represents prayer. Praise, confession, thanksgiving, petitions, intercessions, all of that. But you know what will keep you praying? A deep yearning to please God. You're going to have to go back to him and say, Lord, I'm about to make a decision. I'm not sure what pleases you. I read your word says this, and I understand your word says this, and I observe how you've dealt in Scripture this way, but I'm not getting your clear mind, and I so want to please you. Would you please give me wisdom to make a decision that is acceptable and pleasing to you? Lord, I'm not trying to become righteous. I know I'm righteous because you saved me. You forgave my sins, but because you did that, I want to please you. Here's what happens. There's a conflict in the soul of man. And that is, what is pleasing to God is abominable to men. What men love, God hates. And what God loves, men hate. And we all have to come to the point where we're going to say, am I going to live for the pleasure of those around me and my own pleasure? Or am I going to live for God's pleasure? So why can't you do both? If you have to ask the question, that's probably a problem. (laughs) You cannot... God and man are diametrically opposed naturally. Look, if you would, at Luke 16. Just very quickly, Luke 16. The context of Luke 16 was, of course, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man in hell. But I just want to make this point from God's Word, if you bear with me for just a moment, Luke 16. The Lord Jesus makes quite a profound statement about the conflict between what man esteems highly and what God esteems highly. And this tells us that if I'm going to live a life that's sweet-smelling to God it's going to be abhorrent to men. Meaning, you and I have got to be willing to be jeered at, sneered at, mocked and ridiculed by a world if we're going to live a life that is sweet-smelling to God. Uh, Luke 16, the Bible says in verse 15, And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves, one of the next two words, before men. But God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly Esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of God. Isn't that a statement? Tell me some things this morning that, if you have it, men will go, "Ooh, we think highly of you." Nice vehicle that in some places, sure. Power, power authority, a lot of sway. You have power over other people's absolutely okay so you're a high position person Uh, let's think of another wealth popularity power wealth these all go together um you have physical abilities that others don't have um those are things that are those are i mean all you have to do is answer who are the popular people in our world today who do people highly esteem and say wow that's i mean much education today that makes you a who's who Our Lord was despised. They said, how does this man man know letters having never learned? What a nonsensical statement. (laughs) What they meant is he didn't learn in our schools. He's an idiot, (laughs) right? My point is this. There is a struggle in the heart of every believer once God has saved you over who you're going to live to please. Because there comes a point you realize what pleases him makes people mad. It makes people dislike you. How many of you like to go out and people think, you're weird, I don't... You're you're an idiot. No, I, I used to tell I used to tell my family members nothing makes me more angry than somebody treating me like I'm stupid. Now I thought that was an indictment on the world I lived in, an indictment on my pride. It is. You say, what does this have to do with the altar of incense? Everything. I want you to think about this. Let's walk with the priest into the tabernacle. You're outside the tabernacle, you see a hustle and bustle. There's people everywhere around the camp. I mean, there is hundreds of thousands of people camped around the tabernacle, literally. All the 12 tribes were camped around that tabernacle by, in order, by rank. Uh, Aaron and his family and Moses, they camped right in front with the Levites. And then if all these people camping around, and they were organized as God had told them to be. I mean, it's a hustle and bustle. You are very aware of your fellow man outside that tabernacle. And all of a sudden you come and there's blood and death and smoke and fire. What is going on? It is God and man clashing at the door of the tabernacle. The sinfulness of man meets the holiness of God. And the only way to reconcile it is somebody has to die before we can approach God. And that substitute, picturing Jesus Christ, died on that altar, a picture of the cross, so that we can approach God. That's a picture of the day you got saved. You were well aware of the world you lived in, but God confronted you with His presence. Someone told you that God came to earth and in your place died for your sins. You had to be confronted with the blood and the death of Calvary's cross and you had to do something about it. Am I going to step toward the God that provided for my salvation or walk away in disgust? And what we have to do is face the horror of our sin at that brazen altar and accept that that is the only payment made for us to have forgiveness with God and have fellowship. And the person that walks away from the cross of Jesus Christ walks away from God. That's the only way to approach God is through the cross. But when you've accepted that, you walk forward and then you're introduced to the water of the Word. But think about it. As you pass the brazen altar and that bloody mess that represents the the sacrifice necessary to atone for our sins... Now you're approaching the water of the word. The crowd is a little further from you and you're approaching one instead of many. On the inside of that tabernacle is Almighty God where He'll meet with man at the mercy seat. By the way, not the judgment seat, the mercy seat. God had provided. And the closer you get to that mercy seat, the less aware you are of what's going on out in the world. You hear me this morning. The, the more you appreciate what took place for you on the cross, the more time you spend in the water of God's Word, the more you ingest of the bread of this book, and the more light you get from it, the more aware you are of the presence of God and less aware of the thoughts of your fellow man. <laughs> this is what happens in the tabernacle. Once you step inside the tent, you have walls around you so that you're not, you're not concerned with who's watching you. There's only one now that can see you. You with me? In that holy place, the eyes of only one, it's just you and God. Many people are not even thinking. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, shut your door, go in your closet, so that this is about you and God. It's not about you and what people think about your relationship with God. It's not about you and how people feel about what kind of person you are. It's about you and God. This morning, God would have us live our lives for His eyes, for His ears. And that's what was accomplished through the cross. Before the cross of Christ, we were living for our pleasures. We were living for our, by our understanding, doing what we wanted. We were living according to our lusts. Amen? After the cross, we are to live according to His good pleasure. We do not live according to God's pl- good pleasure today simply for one reason, we don't trust Him. It's that simple. If we trust God, this week I've shared with you the man's testimony. I'm refreshed by the honesty of a man I got to witness to this week. And he, he was very frank with me and he said, you know what, I, I, until I'm in a bad circumstance, I don't even read my Bible. He said, that's just, I'm just being honest. He said, I asked him, I said, do you believe the Bible is 100% accurate? He said, well, I would tell you I do, but apparently I don't because I'm not doing what it says. I didn't say it, he did. I didn't have to preach to him, he preached his own message. And he preached to the other men sitting there with us. (laughs) He said, would you think that's correct? If I really believed it, I would live according to what it says? I said, yeah, that's what James says. That's right. That preaches this morning right here, doesn't it? (laughs) It's neat when the jailhouse preaches in the church house. (laughs) I'm trying to say this morning, God's called us to a life that's about us and Him. Many times we're living our lives about us and them. In fact, we've even turned Christianity into, well, it's about interrelationships with people. You know what? That can be true, but you cannot have proper interrelationships with people unless you're in a right relationship with God. You cannot have a right marriage if you're not right with God. You can't be a right parent if you're not right with God. It's impossible. You can't be a good citizen if you're not right with God. The first and great commandment is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. With all thy heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is like unto it. But let's remember the second is second. It's secondary. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And this morning as we look at the altar, I just want to, I'm going to give you an introductory outline and then we're going to give some concluding points. Because I want to establish the type, if we might, by focusing on this altar and where it's at and how it's designed, and then make the New Testament application. It's not a hard one to make. I think it's very... Simple to see, but bear with me as the message structure is a little different today. So let's look here in Exodus chapter 30, beginning with the sanctification of this altar. The sanctification, God said it is most holy unto the Lord. Meaning God says, you're building this altar for me, for my good pleasure. It's set apart unto me. And so let's just consider a few things about it. Verse 1, it says, and thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon of wood shalt thou make it. One of the great errors we are seeing taught in our day is the confusion of the two altars in the tabernacle. I would say there are certain things I will not do. There are certain things, places I'm not going to go. Uh, there are certain activities I'm not going to engage in. For me, there's certain music I'm not going to listen to. Certain movies, uh, many, 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 many movies I won't watch. <laughs> You say, well, you think you're righteous because of what you do. No, I don't. Not for a moment. And people have confused what is necessary to you, for you to be accepted by the Lord with what it means to live a life acceptable to the Lord. Don't miss what I just said. May I say this? I believe it's good to go to church. I'm not willing to lay out a church. I, I, I love going to church. You say, well, you better not be willing to lay out of church. You're the pastor. Even pastors can let out a church. I like to hunt, but I won't, I won't allow church to hunt. I, I won't be in church more than I want to hunt. It's more important. I'll just say this this morning. Church is more important than hunting. Now, you see what's happened. Let me just give you an illustration. In preferring the house of God over my hobbies and even over putting food on my table, my poor family is starving to death. We don't have enough clothes. We don't have enough food. In our... No, no. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things should be added unto you. So he said, Oh, so you think that you're righteous because you go to church, not on your life. No way. I go to church because I know God forgave my sins and made me righteous for his own grace and namesake. I want to love the people he loved enough to die for. Amen. There's a difference between the brazen altar where sin was being atoned for and the incense altar where one was saying thank you for the atonement. You with me? There were two altars. There's an altar, Ephesians chapter 5 outlines it so clearly, where to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself a a sacrifice, sweet-smelling to God. And then he goes on to say, and because of what he did for you, don't engage in this and don't engage in that, filthy communication and fornication, uncleanness and lasciviousness and Foolish jesting. Ephesians five talks about because of what Christ did on the cross, you give your life a living sacrifice on the altar of incense. Um, the purpose of the altar of incense had nothing. There was no death that took place there. No animal was slain. No drink offering was poured out. Look again, verse one, and thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon of shittim wood. Shalt thou make it? There was one purpose for this altar and it was to offer up a sweet smell inside that place where man was meeting with God. And something that's sweet smelling is something that's pleasant to your nose, right? Uh, I can only imagine how it might have smelled like a slaughterhouse if God didn't have an altar of incense. Yes? You know what is sweet smelling to God? The Christian that says, the person who's received forgiveness of their sins, it says because of what you did for me, you can do with me whatever you want. Because of what you did for me, you can do with me whatever you please. If you loved me enough to die for me, I'll love you enough to live for you. Many a saved person has never made that decision. They've they've rejoiced in the forgiveness of sins. They've rejoiced in the fact that they're pardoned. And that pardon, by the way, is once for all. We dealt with that last week in the morning message. What took place at the brazen altar was not repeated anywhere else in the tabernacle. It was done. I will say this, though. At the incense altar, the blood from the brazen altar once a year, just once a year, was put on the horns of that incense altar. You know what I'm saying? Remember what the horns represent? They represent the strength of sin. You know what deals with the strength of sin? The blood of our substitute. Put on there once a year to say, is it not something that has to be done all the time? That, that, that atonement for sins once a year speaks of the atonement of Christ once and for all. You know what will, you know what will set you apart to live a life that's pleasing to God? Understanding that you are acceptable to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are not made acceptable through what we do. But what we ought to do should reflect the fact that we've been accepted. I hope you're not missing what we're saying this morning. There is a perverse gospel today that says, if you do anything in your life that's practical, that's absolute, you say, I know God's not pleased with that, therefore I'm not going to do that. Oh, you're a legalist. You don't believe in grace salvation. Yes, I do. I just believe it was grace. (laughs) I'm actually happy that I'm not going to go to hell, and I actually love the one who keeps me from it. We should live our every breathing moment for His pleasure. And so the altar, the purpose was to be a sweet-smelling... It was not to atone for sins. It was to reflect the sins that had been atoned for. It was simply to be a sweet-smelling Savior, something that God, God said, here's the recipe. Here's what you're going to put on that altar. And you're never to duplicate it. It is only... The recipe is to be burnt in one place and one place only on that incense altar. That's it. If you duplicate it, you die. <laughs> that was the law. Disobey, Die. I'm glad we're not under the law. I'm glad God has forgiven our sins for Christ's sake. But the fact of the matter is this. The purpose of the altar was not the same as the purpose of the brazen altar where atonement for sins was the purpose. The peculiarity of this altar is it was distinctly different, as we're saying, from the brazen altar. Its dimensions were smaller. It was overlaid with gold rather than brass. Brass is a picture of judgment, not this one. No, this is a picture of great value. It's overlaid with gold. It's something of value and of something of beauty. Do you realize... I don't believe Christians realize the value of a holy life. Of a life saying, you know what? I not only want what man sees to look like I'm pleasing God. I want what God knows that I think to please God. I want the attitude of my heart to please Him. Search me, O God, David said, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. In Psalm 19, verse 14, he says, Let the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And so then, the sanctification of the altar, its purpose was to burn incense, not to atone for sins. It was to offer up something that smelled pleasing to God, according to God's design and God's recipe that He gave. The dimensions were different from that of the brazen altar. It was overlaid with gold rather than brass. Its placement is directly in front of the mercy seat, meaning you are now you are directly in front of the presence of God the only thing was that veil in between again we'll deal with that later but it was placed right there as you are you are you are what was knowledgeable is i am standing before the very presence of God i don't know of anything you know our nation is rich in so many things we are rich in natural resources we are rich in in so many physical ways but we have a poverty. We are in deep poverty for the fear of God. For the acknowledgement that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the majority believes. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the majority of Christians or professing Christians believes. What matters is what God thinks. At the end of the day is what God says. That's what matters. It's it's, it's, it's we, That's called the fear of the Lord. I... I, I, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. I am concerned about what God sees. If you misunderstand what you see, that's between you and God. But God knows. This morning, God knows how I'm processing His Word. God knows when I bypass something He says. God knows when I bristle at His correction. God knows when I'm humble and submitted and when I'm yielded and trusting. God knows the heart. And when you're standing here right before that mercy seat, the picture is I'm standing between... There's, I'm right before God that this is about me and him. That's why it pictures the consecrated life. So that speaks to the sanctification of the altar. The service of the altar is found in verses 7 through 10. It's interesting what was told to be done. It says, And Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning when he dresseth the lamps. When he goes and trims the lamps, make sure they're burning brightly, he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even." He shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Perpetual means there should never be a time when someone stepped into the holy place that you couldn't smell. Ah, that's being offered up to God. There should never be a time you walk in it was dark, or there wasn't bread on the table, or incense on the altar. It was perpetual. Psalm one one says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, uh, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. We have, and we have as Christians been accused of being hypocrites because you act like Christians on Sunday and you forget Monday through Saturday. Even a lost world knows that ain't right. Look, at, I'm glad to be here on Sunday. I believe Sunday is the Lord's day. It's the first day when he conquered death and stepped out of the grave alive. We find the early church assembling on Sunday. But if your Christianity is relegated to a few minutes in the morning and one day on of the week, that's not God's will for your life. Really, you know what makes Sunday, when we assemble, you know what makes it a blessing? When we're communing with God every other day of the week like we should be. Then we bring into each other what God's been doing for us in in private. What we pray over in secret, God will reward openly. I'll just say this. I believe, as a preacher and as a pastor, I believe with all of my heart, it's really almost impossible to help people spiritually who will not walk with God personally daily each day of the week. If I'm neglecting my communion with the Lord, meaning eating the bread of His Word, seeing the light of His Word, and then offering up a life that is pleasing in the light of His Word and having accepted the, the truth of His Word, when I come to church, it's like pouring water on a very dry ground. It just rolls off. And really, we need to be saturated with God's Word. And I know I'm hitting the rabbit trail too. two. Bear with me. The service at the altar, first of all, we find that it was constant. The, it was morning and evening perpetual this is what tells us it's about consecration this was not a once a week thing why would we do that by the way why why would we want to compartmentalize our lives into the secular and the spiritual I got the spiritual parts of my life then I have the parts of my life so I have part of my life I live for me and I have another part of my life I live for God here's what happens we know when we're living for ourselves, it's sin especially if you're saved you know that selfishness is sin pride is sin So we have just enough of a spiritual life to soothe our conscience about our carnal life. It's flesh. It's flesh. It's our fleshly reasoning. I'm trying to satisfy my conscience knowing I'd be in hell if Christ hadn't died for me. Shouldn't I live every waking moment for Him? I'll be honest with you. I remember at at, at 16 years old, this is, this is the truth that God drove into my heart. I died for you. And how are you responding to what I did for you? At that time, I was basically saying, don't tell me how to live. I'm thankful that I'm not going to hell because of you, but I'll thank you, I'll decide how I live. What a wicked way to think. What a wicked way to think. And so the constancy tells of consecration. The curator, you remember who it was put the blood on the, on the incense altar once a year? The high priest. Do you know who's the curator of our consecrated life? You know who's the one that reminds us his blood is what takes care of our sin? There's one mediator between God and men, and the man Christ Jesus. Do you know who's going to constantly remind you through some loudmouth preacher? You need to be living your life for Christ. He'll do it. He's the one who shed his blood. He's going to remind you. Remember what I did for you. Who was it that said to Thomas, "Take a look, Thomas. You didn't believe me, but look here. Put your hand in here, Thomas." Who was curating Thomas's consecration? Who was it found Peter and said, "Peter." At one point, you told me you love me more than the other disciples. Lovest thou me more than these? Lord, you know I, I love you. You know that Jesus said, lovest thou me? And he said, agape, unconditionally. Do you love me like I love you? And you know what Peter said back? I love you, phileo. I love you like a brother. Jesus said, I love you like God. Do you love me like that? And Peter said, I love you like a brother. Lord, you know I love you. And he said, then do what I tell you. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Three times. Who was curating Peter's consecrated life? Who was dressing the altar? The living Son of God. Now, if Christ has saved you, don't you think for a minute He's going to let you just go off and fish your life away without interrupting you and say, lovest thou me? Huh? If He saved you, don't think He's going to leave you alone. Say, well, if I can get that preacher to leave me alone, don't you count on it. He'll find some other way to bug you. <laughs> Amen? He died for you. He's the one that's dressing the altar. He's the one that's going to say there's some incense needs to be offered. And so this morning, the curator of the altar was the high priest. It's our living Savior who stirs in us, offer up a life that's pleasing to God the Father. Didn't he come to reconcile us to God? We were living lives of sin before he saved us. Now He saved us to live a life pleasing to God. So the curator is Christ. The constraints... He said, don't ever put, don't offer uh, a sacrifice on there. He makes it very clear uh, that they were, there was to never be any strange incense on there. Only only could you put on there what God instructed. Don't come up with your own idea of what's pleasing to God. Don't miss it. Look here in, the, in verse, in verse uh, uh, 9. You shall offer no strange incense thereon. You remember a couple of boys that tried that? They offered strange fire. Nadab who? and God killed them. Meaning, they said, we'll decide what pleases God. Let me help you with something this morning, as plain as I can be. God already knows what pleases Him, and you and I won't change His mind. No. (laughs) What pleases Him, pleases Him. And we need to find what pleases Him. And there are people today who say, well, this pleases God, and this pleases God. And I'm living a life that pleases God, because I decided it pleases God. A strange fire. He won't accept it. No strange incense. It had to be according to His instruction. Uh, you are not to offer burnt sacrifice or meat offering. I don't want you putting something on here to atone for sins. That's done. If you start thinking, well, my church attendance and my Bible reading and my Sabbath keeping, that's going to make me saved. No! That's offering a burnt offering on your altar of incense. We don't live lives to please God trying to atone for sins. That's done. We live our lives in gratitude that they are atoned for. Amen. And so then, I think we see the picture that it was to be constant. The curator or the high priest, the constraints were no, no, nothing that you would offer on the brazen altar should you ever offer on the altar of incense. It is exclusively for something that smells good to God. Okay. Number three, the signification of the altar, it speaks of the work of our Savior. Obviously, the altar of incense speaks of the Lord offering himself up as a sweet-smelling savor. Let me go ahead and read it now, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 and 2. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Be therefore followers of God as dear children. Verse 2 says, And walk in love as Christ. So we've got a template. You now have been purchased by Christ. You are saved by Christ. You are secured by Christ. Now walk in His likeness. Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Do you realize what Jesus Christ gave up to die on the cross? He was offered a kingdom now. Do you realize he could have been established as king of Israel right then? Had he so chosen. He would rather obey God the Father than have an earthly kingdom for a period of time. He said no. Do you realize our Lord decided he never married? In contrast to what some perverted people would teach about the word of God. He never married. Could he have married? Yes, but he chose not to so that he could fulfill the will of his Father. You realize the cross was Jesus Christ, the Son of God's obedience to God the Father. That's what it means to walk in love. I will say no to me in order to say yes to you. I'll lay down what I want because I love you enough to obey you. And God says, as he did, so do you. He offered himself up to God, a sweet-smelling savor. The Bible says uh, as himself for a, 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 he offered as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So the, the sweet-smelling savor off the altar of incense certainly speaks of the obedient life of Christ offered up in our stead. But what's interesting is the New Testament lays out a number of other scriptures that are referred to as being sweet-smelling to God, meaning they don't satisfy God's wrath. They are appealing to his heart and mind. Realize we are made in His image. There are things that God likes, and there's things that God hates. I mean, let's name some things this morning that are abomination to God: lying lips, hands that shed innocent blood. Hands that shed innocent blood. Those are two of seven named in Proverbs. Feet to be swift and run to mischief. Correct. Um, a proud look. He mentions lying twice: lying lips and a lying tongue. He that soweth discord among brethren. Seven things God says there, and they're just seven. And they pretty much encompass everything man does. And God says, I hate that. There are those that say, because of the grace of Christ today, God doesn't hate it anymore. No, God still hates what he hates. And because our sins are forgiven, we should hate it too. And this morning what I'm trying to say is this, is that... There are things in the New Testament that are called a sweet-smelling savor to God. Let's cover those just real quickly as we continue to establish the type, and then we'll bring this thing to a close. Okay, so we've talked about the sanctification of that altar. We've talked about uh, the service that was done on it and the signification of it. It deals with the work of the Savior, but it deals with the worship of the saint is what it expresses. You and I are made kings and priests unto God. In the likeness of our great high priest, we are to offer up a life that is well-pleasing to God, not to atone for our sins, but because they've been atoned for, and so then let's consider a few more texts of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to read for time's sake. If you want to write these down, if you're, if you're not able to stay up reading while I read, that's okay. But I encourage you to write them down and, and, and make sure that what's being read is what the Bible says. Hebrews 13, verse 12. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go, therefore, unto him without the camp bearing his reproach, except the fact that Christ had to die for your sins, accept the reproach of your sin laid on him. Humble yourself, have faith in the cross of Christ. Verse 14, For Here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God. What's the next word if you're in your Bible there? Continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, but to do good and to communicate Forget not for what such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Is, is praise a means of salvation or a manifestation of salvation? You know, how often should praise be in our lips toward God? Continually. Now, let's just do a practicality check this morning. Because this, is what, this, this helps us, Christian. When was the last time genuine? I'm not talking about where we said, oh, praise God. <laughs> where you actually said, Lord... I am I am I am overjoyed uh, with this about you Lord I am thankful today I'm thankful today that I can have my sins forgiven and I am thankful today for the peace of knowing that I can pray to God and God hears me because of Jesus Christ Can you tell me how many days a year should those words come off our lips with genuine sincere gratitude 365 more than once. And yet when given an opportunity to give credit to God for something, we have a hard time because he hasn't done lately what we wanted him to. You hear me now? We wait to praise God until he does what we tell him. When God gives me what I want, then I'll tell him thank you. Look at, he already did more than he ever should have or needed to do. It is of his mercies we are not consumed. I'll use my dear friend at the jail again. I went in the other night and I said, "When any pray prayer requests? And he said, pray for those who have it worse than we do. We could have it a lot worse. To be honest with you, even we in here are doing pretty good. We eat well. Maybe we should pray for people that are worse off than us. Pretty good perspective if you ask me. There's a man who can't physically be here today. He's incarcerated. He can't, he can't be here today. We're sitting on a padded pew in church sulking like a sour lemon sometimes. Shame on the person who's come past that brazen altar. They cannot find any incense to put on the golden altar. The praise of God should come from our lips continually. When was the last time? What was the Bible? By the way, Thanksgiving is part of praise and praise is part of Thanksgiving. But praise is really acknowledging the goodness of God. And we can do that through Thanksgiving. We ought to thank God for his attributes. They'll no, say, Lord, I'm grateful that you're righteous. I'm grateful that you're merciful. I'm grateful that you're just. Thank you very much for not being like me. <laughs> Aren't you glad you don't have a God that's like us? I'm glad you don't have a God today that's like me, and I'm glad I have a God that's like you. I'm glad I have a God who is like Jesus Christ because he is. Amen? This morning, lack how many, we ought to focus on what's not coming out of our lives. How often is genuine praise not coming from our lips. The Bible says morning and evening. He likens praise here to it's an incense offered up. There's something else that Paul likened the Philippians, something they did that was called a sweet-smelling savor. I think this is interesting. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says that famous verse, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. He's speaking of the sufficiency of Christ to sustain him in his service. He says, verse 14, notwithstanding ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now, ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only, for even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Meaning you say, I've got fruit, and I'm tying it back. You get account for it. Here's why, verse 14. But I have all and abound. I am full Having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, here it is, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. What the Philippians had done is they said, Paul is laboring to preach the gospel, and we need to make sure he has what he needs. And they gave of themselves so he could do the work of God. And Paul is saying, what you did reached the nostrils of God. They didn't do it because they liked Paul. They didn't do it because Paul wrote a letter saying, "If you will send me an offering, I'll send you a prayer cloth." No. They did because they loved Jesus Christ. God loveth a cheerful giver. You know what? We'll talk about giving around here. We'll talk about giving financially. But the day comes that you feel pressured to give financially some way because we have oh we are so noble. You have to give. You have to give. Shame on us. If we can't give because this is His institution worthy of our life's investment, shame, then it's no good. You know what the Philippians did? They were giving of their possessions. So the giving of praise in the New Testament is called an incense. It's sweet smelling to God. The giving of our possessions. But you help me this morning. Is it, is it difficult to give possessions or praise if God has you? Romans 12.1 Remember what was not on the altar? Of incense, what was never there was blood on the horns to show the blood has covered the strength and power of sin, but there was never to be death. Nothing ever died inside the holy place, except for pride. <laughs> but no animal died there; that was taken care of. It was outside in the brazen altar. So all the sacrifices on the incense altar were living sacrifices. Romans 12:1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. We're before what kind of seat? Mercy seat. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. That's sweet smelling. Which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. Meaning don't live like the world in lust and pride. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed... By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I should start my morning saying, Lord, what do you want my attitude to be today? You died for me. I'll live to please you. Lord, what kind of language do you want me to use today? You died for me. I'll live a life that's pleasing to you. Lord, what kind of clothes would you have me to wear? What message do you want me to send through the way I appear? You died for me i live to please you. Lord, what would you be willing to have fall on my ears? What do you want influencing my life today through my ears and my eyes? You died for me. I'll live to please you. Lord, who do you want my friends to be? You died for me. I'll live to please you. Lord, where would you have me go to church? You died for me. I'll live to please you. Lord, what kind of conversations do you want me to have with my coworkers and with my neighbors? And Lord, would you have me to murmur and complain? You with me? When the body is given a living sacrifice, then we use our feet in a way that pleases Him. So so how do you... The will of God is so hard to find. That's the lamest cop-out we've ever heard. God is not hiding His will from you behind His back. The only thing that hides God's will from us is our stubborn pride. God is light and Him is no darkness. People say it's so hard to know what God wants. No, it's not. We already named seven things this morning that He hates. It's not that hard. What's hard is our hearts. Not God. God's not confused. He's not a confuser. God is not darkness. God is light. I'll say this. Once you arrive at that place where you say, I'm done. I'm done trying to reconcile what I want with what God wants. I'll only do what He wants. The floodgates of joy will open for you. Because then your life is simple. I don't have to try to get God to agree with me. I don't have to try to twist the Bible to say what I want it to. All I got to do is submit to God and say, whatever you tell me, that's what I'll do. And if my feet are going places that don't please you, I'll stop. And if I'm laying my eyes on things that I know don't please you, I'll stop. Nine times out of ten we're wrestling that we already have some things we know don't please Him. We're hanging on to them. But they need to go on the altar, don't they? You know what happened to that incense that went on the altar and it got burned up? A life lived not for oneself is consumed for the good pleasure of God. And it's sweet smelling to him and it's a testimony to others of his goodness. Let me give you some closing verses. That, that encompass this entire thought. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's much, sadly, sadly, there's much argument, much debate, much conflict, much strife among professing Christians about how Christians should live. And especially in America where we are so intelligent. We are so smart that we can't let the Bible just simply instruct our days and our steps. Eh It's a problem. Amen. We'd be better to be converted and become as little children and just take God at His word. But my point is this this morning. If we can get a hold of this truth, that 100% of our lives, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, morning and evening, should not be lived trying to reconcile what God wants with what I want, but simply being lived unto the Lord. That's that's the picture. The incense was put on there, and it went upward to heaven as a picture of this is what's sweet-smelling to God. I've seen people debate. Well, before we read 2 Corinthians 5, as a pastor, this is just part of your living. So I want to always be careful when I give pastor illustrations because it can come across, it can have the wrong, eh, 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 can have the wrong effect. That's not my point. This is the life I live. So you preach things from the Bible, and people have things that they don't, they don't, they don't like about what the Bible says because I'm living the way I want. The Bible's going to change the way I live, and I don't want to change the way I live. I like the way I am. And so what happens is. Well, you preach that that's sin. Pastor, you preach that Christians shouldn't drink alcohol. You preach people shouldn't live together. We're just trying to make sure it'll work. And you preach that you shouldn't listen to that music, and that's harsh, and all that. Can you prove to me that as a Christian, I can't do that? Friend, under what Christ did for you on the cross, you do whatever you want. You do whatever you want. And if what you want is not what he wants, shame on you. (laughs) You proved to me from the Bible that I'm going to tell you the greatest legalists of our day are people who say, you can't give me chapter and verse, I ain't doing it. Oh, so you're under the law. You have to have a statute. Simply getting the eye of God is not enough. Psalm 32 says he would guide us with his eye. If you have to have a chapter and verse and can't pick up on the mind of the spirit through reading the whole thing, something's wrong you with me this morning? You give me chapter or verse or I'll do whatever I want. Well, go ahead. <laughs> but shouldn't we be doing what he wants? Shouldn't be our pursuit, he died for me, I live for him. That ought to be it. And there shouldn't be... Uh, uh, and I'm not looking for an idealistic world. We live in a sinful world, so it'll never be idealistic till we're in heaven. I get that. But among God's people, the lack of unity... Is lack of unity here, not here? The aim of the heart is not on point. The aim of the heart is I I had someone articulate it this clearly to me. It wasn't to me, it was to a loved one. I said, You believe, unless you can see that God is pleased with it, you won't do it. I believe that I'm going to do something that pleases me unless God shows me I'm not supposed to. You tell me the driving force behind that. It is. I live to please myself. And then I see God as a hindrance to that. You know why we need to lay our bodies on on the living living sacrifice? And by the way, that's daily. It's not like, I did that 30 years ago. That's taken care of. (laughs) No, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and my flesh is going to want its way. And so is yours. And we have to be reminded of what Christ did for us on the cross and the blood that took care of our sins. So we say, you know what? You know, I love all of you. I do. And I trust you love me. But I didn't die for you and you didn't die for me. So we're going to live for Him. Amen? To His pleasing. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll give you just a few thoughts and we're done. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. Paul says, For whether we be beside ourselves. Obviously there had been some criticism of Paul. Well, you get a little worked up, don't you, Paul? A little emotional, aren't you? Yeah, he, he was at times. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. Look what he says, verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. I mean, if Christ had to die for everybody and there was no one that could save themselves, they were all dead in sin. Verse 15, and that he died for all, that they which live, those who have received eternal life from him, should not henceforth live unto, please read it with me, themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. I began to say, sadly, over debates over what will be called standards of Christian living. We have to have standards, by the way, if you want to call it that. When that comes a point, I can see that the Lord is not pleased with something in my life, all of a sudden that becomes a rule, well, I'm not doing that anymore. That became a standard for me. I know that doesn't please him. I know that that practice I was involved in was dishonest. I I know that that behavior or that apparel was immodest. And he said that he's not pleased with that. But I've had times where people want to debate their position. And you'll say, well, why are you where you are? Well, my work. You know, the kind of work I do requires me to wear this or hear that or do this or do that. My work. My comfort. My, um, you know, what about the Word of God? No, no, I mean, it's okay, this is a neutral point. We, we need to live our lives in a way that we're confident it's pleasing Him. Meaning living our lives unto Him, that's how Paul puts it. And what led me to this message and the deep burden I have with this message, I found myself praying in weeks past for my children and for our ministry and just realizing, oh, there's a theme here. I pray, Lord, would you help us? and help those that I love live their lives unto you. I'd, be, I'd feel bad if someone says, Pastor, I don't believe what you preach, but I just don't want to disappoint you. That's bad. Don't live your life unto you, Pastor. Live your life unto Christ. Amen? I, I don't believe what my mate does, but, you know, I'll go along. No, no, that won't last. That won't last. Live unto Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 again these few things. Number one, there's a confidence that's stated here. When Paul says, for we, whether we be beside ourselves is to God or whether we be sober as fear cause. for the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus what? Judge. We made a determination based on the truth of the gospel that if one died for all, then we're all dead. We all have the same need. We we're all dead in sins. And cry, The Bible says Jesus tasted death for every man. Meaning without Jesus Christ, every man would go to hell. So if you're not under God's wrath and condemnation today, there's one person to be thanked for it, and one only. And that's Jesus Christ. Only one person stands between you and the wrath of God. Only one! And it's Jesus Christ. What Paul's saying, then live your life in a singular manner. The preacher, you preached on this all last year. That's correct. <laughs> one thing. When I am living to please Christ and please me, what am I? Double-minded. Double-minded. I'm hot and I'm cold, which makes me absolutely. And we have a funny breed of so-called Christianity today that says, you live the way you want, bring God in on it to make you look spiritual. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Do you realize Paul gave up his education, Paul gave up his vocation, Paul gave up his religion to serve one person. And he was called a fool for it until the day he went to his grave. Paul's far more popular today than he was when he was alive. I guarantee you that. He bore in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. His confidence was all are dead and one died for all. So we all have the same, we have, should have the same gratitude toward Christ. The constraint is dealt with here. His love for me returns and results in my love for him. 1 John four nineteen. we love him because he first loved us. And then finally, the consequence, when we realize I was dead And if Christ had not died for me, I would be dead eternally. The second death, the lake of fire would be mine. But he died for me. He died for all, which means he died for me. The consequence is because he died for me and now I don't have to die. I now live because of his death. Then I'm going to live unto him. It's in our bulletin today. This verse and these text of verses are all wrapped up in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, meaning I've given up living the life that I want to live because of His death for me. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, meaning I live trusting Him to spend my life as He sees fit. I live my life by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself, Paul gets very personal, for me. If you're saved this morning, there had to come a point where you realize what Jesus suffered on the cross was for you. Not generally just for everybody. Do you think this morning you can be righteous enough to go to heaven without Jesus' death on the cross in your place? He had to be punished for the sins you personally have committed. Your lies put nails in His hands. Your dishonor to parents put, put a thorn of crowns on His head. Your pride and my pride and my uncleanness and lasciviousness put Him on that cross! No one on earth has done that for me. No one. So no one can demand of me what he demands. But he doesn't demand it by coercion. He demands it by his love. To not live every waking moment for Jesus Christ is nothing short of sin. He's worthy. Is he not? He died for us. And without his death, we'd die eternally. That's what Paul's saying. He said, the constraint is, he loved me enough, no one made him. He laid his life down so that I can be forgiven. Then I will live my life unto him. Not them, not me. In finality, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, the Bible tells us how the Christian should live, the believer in Jesus Christ. Um, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, this is our final passage, and we're done. You've been very good listeners this morning. 1 Peter 1, 13, the Bible says. Submit your. Excuse me. I'm in the wrong place. That's First Peter 2. 1 Peter 1. Verse 13. Wherefore gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. And hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children. Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. Don't live by the lust of flesh and the pride of life. No, no, no. But as he which hath called you is holy. So be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it's written. Be holy, for I am holy. Think about that incense altar. As that priest would eat the bread that represents God's word, as he would trim the lamp and the light would shine, that informed him to be able to go to that altar and offer up something that was sweet-smelling to God. It's the same with us today. As we get into the word of God, and instead of rejecting what God says, we receive it. Instead of running from the light, we walk in it. Then we are now equipped to live a life that is pleasing to him. Why? To atone for our sins? Oh, no, that's been done for on the cross but to show Him how grateful I am that my sins are atoned for and to live our lives in Him. My my question for you this morning, first and foremost, is have you come to the place where you realize offering up a life to God is not going to atone for your sins? It took the cross of Christ to do that. Have you had your sins forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ? I'll ask you what I asked the other night of the the fellows I got to preach on Wednesday. Has there been a time where you, trusting that the Word of God is true about Jesus Christ, his death for you, his sinlessness, your sinfulness, turned to him and said, Lord Jesus, I am asking you to make me clean. I am an unclean sinner, and you died, and I believe it, and I'm asking you, knowing you're living, would you please make me clean? Have you turned personally to Jesus Christ and received what he bought for you when he died? He died for your sins, but to make that to your account, you have to, by faith, receive it. Has there been a time when you've done that? You can never offer up on the incense altar a life-pleasing until you've been back at the brazen altar accepted the substitutionary work of Christ. Second question this morning. You say, you know what, I know Christ died in my place. Does your life reflect that faith? Does your life say, I do know that if it weren't for Jesus Christ, I'd burn in hell for all eternity. Only He stands between me and the judgment of God, and I will live my life only to please Him. And if man is displeased with me, they can get over it. (laughs) I'm going to live for the one who died for me. Is that not the constraint of God's love?